It's like a news conference. (laughs) We are in Ephesians chapter 6, beginning in verse 10. Our climactic final message of this series as we're preparing for battle. I'm going to read first and then make my comments. So it's Ephesians 6, 10 and following. I'm reading from the Happy Rock translation of Ephesians. If you don't have that one, then you can read along with yours and compare it. And if, and if you'd like one, email me. I'll send you the Happy Rock translation of all of Ephesians. I'm still working on it, but it's good to go for now. I'll just make adjustments and send out new copies as we go. Okay, that's great. So here we go. Ephesians 6.10 So from this point on, become more powerful in the Lord and in the dominion rooted in His strength. Clothe yourselves with God's complete set of battle gear so that you will be able to stand against the schemes of the slanderer. Because the struggle for us is not against blood and flesh. It is rather against the rulers, against the authorities, against the world dominators of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly regions. In light of this, take up God's complete set of battle gear so you will be powerful to withstand in the evil day. Ta- oh, sorry, I just, um, I got a text. I'm supposed to be on do not disturb. And I got distracted. Where was I, you guys? What verse? In, okay, verse 13. I'll read it again. In light of this, take up God's complete set of battle gear. So you will be powerful to withstand in the evil day. And I translated that way to peel back um, just into the Greek a little bit. It's the word for power there. But of course, um, you know, one of our mottos is that we're discovering the way of powerful living in Jesus Christ. You know, we don't care so much about conducting services. We want to be a powerful church that actually does the will of God in the power of the Spirit. Making disciples, proliferating, planting churches, filling our city with Christ. Being the people we're supposed to be, transformed lives within, without, that's what we're after. We want to be powerful people. We want to be equipped. We want to live lives incandescently with God's glory. We want the people to actually be the people of God. We don't want to be a successful ministry, per se, organizationally. We want to be powerful people. So we felt like the Lord laid the Ephesians mandate on our heart. To go through it, not just the series and teachings in this settings, uh, in this setting, but in our own groups, in our own hearts, taking hold of the Ephesians mandate to prepare us for successful spiritual battle in our city. So we want to be powerful. That's why I'm translating it that way. Plus, it's legit to me. It's it's a better translation anyway, and it fits our theme. So in this way, when you're when when we are clothed in God's complete set of battle gear, we will be powerful to withstand in the evil day and having prepared in every way to stand. Stand, therefore, having buckled your waist with truth and fastened on the breastplate of righteousness and strapped your feet with the readiness of the gospel of peace in everything. Taking up the shield of faith, which with, with which you will be powerful to smother all the burning arrows of the evil one and receive the helmet of deliverance or salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God through every kind of prayer and plea, praying at all times in the spirit and staying awake toward him. With all kinds of perseverance and pleas on behalf of all the holy ones. And Paul says on my behalf, pray that a message would be given to me when I open my mouth to make known with courage the mystery of the gospel. On behalf of which I serve as a chained ambassador. 
so that in it I may speak courageously as I should speak. So this is our climactic message because it is Paul's climactic moment in this entire epistle. I I translated at the beginning, uh, so from this point on, because Paul's not merely saying, okay, these, these are my final words. He's not just giving us a bit of information. But this is, you know, this happens to be what I'm saying at the end. He's saying that in light of everything I said, okay, in light of everything, here's what you really need to do. This is where I've been going with all of this instruction and exhortation, right? It's all led up to this moment that is a call to arms. It is a battle cry. It is saying, okay, you get it all? Have you been listening? Are you getting it? Okay. Instruction, exhortation, okay. You got that? Yes. All right. Now, stand up and fight. Because we're in a spiritual battle. Now for us, we happen to believe that God is calling us prophetically. Not just generically as we can study the scripture systematically. But we also believe that the spirit is speaking to us saying, you are in a season of preparation for specific war. So we want to pay heed and do the best we can with that. Our battle cry, the exhortation from the spirit uh, of course, there's a few. There's there's a, there's a list, but the one we're going to hang our hats on is be strong. This is the climactic message and exhortation. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might, which is the, the translation from other uh, Bible translations. I'll refer to that. We are discovering and we're doing the powerful way of living in Jesus. So this is the climactic message. For a couple of reasons. All right, and I'm talking about even from Paul's vantage point. He ends with this as his pinnacle exhortation. Because, uh, of course, everything's been leading up to this so far. What he's saying is, look, in this set of battle here, there's nothing new in Ephesians. Everything in this set of battle here is something he talked about earlier. There's nothing new in that set. Right. Truth, righteousness, the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, you know, faith itself, salvation, the sword of the spirit, the word, the Greek word there is rhema. He also uses the other word logos throughout the epistle. But but the point is, all of these topics have been covered for him. He's already talked about them. He's already said, let's do this. Let's do that. Let's embrace righteousness in our new uh, as the new creation. The the word cleanses the bride, you know, salvation. He's discussed that it's free by grace. You know, let's let's appropriate these beautiful gifts God has given us. Let's live in harmony with our new identity. He has said it all already. But now he's putting it all together in a different way and in a different spirit. Now he's saying, live out all these truths and virtues like warriors. He's casting it in a new vein. Are you following me? He's already talked about these topics. There's nothing new under this little sun here shining on our text. It's all been in Ephesians. Topically, we could have skipped this last message. Of course, we wouldn't do that. It's the climax of the whole deal. It's the final punch. But if we were only concerned with topics, they're already covered. But Paul's saying, now I'm going to weave them together and say, wear it like battle gear and fight like your champion warrior, King Jesus. Fight. Because he hasn't quite put it that way. He implied it, as we'll see. I'll run through some of the ways he's implied battle, but never explicitly. Now he's saying, okay, you guys, you have to take all these things and fight. Because for you to cultivate righteousness... In chapters 2 and wherever else he mentions it, chapter 4. For you to cultivate unity, chapters 2 and 4 again. For you to do these things, it's not just a nice Christian thing to do. It's warfare. It counts. Lives are at stake when you do the things that this epistle has enumerated up to chapter 6 and a half. You see what I'm saying? So he has to cast it in a whole different light. That's why it's not new, this, chap, this, this part of the chapter, but it's new. The second reason is this. The second reason he climaxes it this way is right here, okay? Paul's saying, if you guys are doing all the things I've been teaching, all the way through chapter 1 to 6 and a half, 
You know, if you have it in your mind, the first three chapters, this vision of the eternal purpose and the victorious Messiah and what this means for Jews and Gentiles and therefore you guys as the church, what it means to speak the truth in love, to resist certain kinds of humor and foul talk, but rather to be reconciled, to be unified, to be a family. If you guys do this and do it consistently, And do it well. If you give your lives to it. So that you really are developing internally as family. And then externally on mission. You will get resisted by dark forces. You will pass through unique evil days. It's going to happen. In particular, there are going to be people who will resist you and criticize you and slander you and threaten you if you try to do this kingdom message. He's not talking about conventional Christianity. He's talking about apostolic kingdom Christianity. If you give yourselves to this and conscientiously try to cultivate the life described in these chapters, you will be resisted particularly on certain days and in certain seasons. There are going to be onslaughts. You've got to be ready. Because it's usually going to come through people. Now, I'm really paraphrasing, but I believe these truths are in there. Right? We've all experienced these, you know, the mystery illness or the mystery oppression in the middle of the night or whatever. These direct supernatural attacks, they happen. But usually when the real stuff comes, it comes through people who are standing up against us for all kinds of reasons. You know, lies, slander, political issues, safety, uh, you know, whatever, whatever it is. It's like there's going to be something about the way you live and your message that we have to stand up against, you Christians, and the way you're doing things. Some of them will be fellow Christians that are more religious. Some of them will be way outside the camp. But there's going to be resistance. And Paul's telling these people, he's telling the, 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 he's telling the believers... Um, your battle's not against those people that are going to confront you. Because you're going to be resisted by people, but your battle is not against the people. It's against the dark forces behind them. So don't get confused and don't make the mistake because you see the flesh and blood, right? You're right there in real time, real color with human beings saying and doing bad, stupid things against you. Don't think in the moment with all your emotions there that your battle is against them. Because it's not. Because as soon as you think it is and you respond that way, you immediately fight with carnal weapons. And Paul's saying, there's just no way you're going to advance this kingdom. You're going to have your influence. If you fight the battles on these evil days, these evil days, in the, in the same carnality that you see with your eyes. The same carnal natural world. That's not where the battle is. So there's a temptation to fight carnally. And Paul's saying it's very, it's very much like 2 Corinthians 10. When he says the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. But they're divinely powerful. For the pulling down of strongholds. Paul says don't be strong. And then he stops. He says be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. You've got to have God's battle gear on. Because your natural inclination is to fight spiritual wars with your natural weapons, your soul. Your, 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 your carnal words, your ideas coming out and, and, and reacting. And, and these, these emotions of, of anger and jealousy and, and talking about people. and all. There's, you're going to try to react and find power in yourselves rather in the Lord. Do you see the kind of focus and calibration toward which Paul is trying to move us? Man, I like that. That's kind of the gist of the message right there. But no, no, I'm not going to stop talking. I'm not done. (laughs) So in as much as we've been embracing these truths and trying to work them out in our churches, and by God's grace, we're praying that lots of people in our city, we have a city vision, would catch the more kingdom message and begin to cultivate the Ephesians mandate and all it represents in all the New Testament. The more we do that, we're already fighting. We're moving forward. And it's interesting in this passage, Paul says, take your stand when you get resist 
when you get resisted. And most of the battle gear is defensive. So it almost seems like there's a defensive tone. Stand against it. Don't let it knock you down. All the gear, it's, by the way, most of it is on the front. And the one weapon is the sword. Everything else is, is protective. Right? And so it seems to have a, de- a defensive tone. And yet, if we're actually doing the things Paul tells us to do in the rest of Ephesians and implied throughout the New Testament, we're fighting and moving forward. We're taking the initiative like our king. Right? We're doing that. We're going forward. We're not just passively living our lives. Everything we do to cultivate family on mission in terms of New Testament wisdom is forward motion and an aggressive advancement of the kingdom. Choo, right? What Paul's saying is, right, you're already moving forward, you're fighting, but there's going to be seasons you go through where there's going to be a clear extra resistance. So when that happens, don't stop. Keep your ground. And I do that because I got my mighty shoes on. And those, the, 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 the equipment on the feet, those shoes of the gospel of peace, the, the soldiers of the, this first century context would have had spikes in the bottom of those shoes. That's not for kicking all you ninjas. That's for standing the ground like cleats, like battle gear cleats. We're not moving. Right? Sometimes that's, the, that, that's one of the main things you can do in a heated spiritual battle. It's like you don't have all the answers. You don't know what things to say and to pray. It's just like, guys, just stand together and don't give up your ground. Just don't give up. And, but all of that's because we're the ones advancing. You see what I'm saying? It's not merely defensive. It's a defensive type of instruction at a certain point that already has us. Come on now. Bulldozing forward. The point is, be strong, stand your ground, fight, but not in your own power. In this age of social media, how many times has a preacher said that from a pulpit? In this age of social media, such a cliche, but it's still true. Man, oh man, do we Christians mouth off out of the flesh. I mean, unbelievable. (laughs) Talk about carnal weapons. Language with zero power. But we have a platform. Blah, 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 blah. Violating the king's way all the time with no conscience whatsoever. Battling for no influence, no spread of the kingdom. No congealing of a people as a family to take things forward. Not happening. I mean, don't get me wrong. People can use social media here and there, and, and they use it well. That's up to them. My point is, it just doesn't happen very often. It brings out the worst that probably wouldn't have come out any other way. And we can't mistake that for power. Things have been blown open in our, in our era because of this ability to have a platform even when you don't. And we're just blowing hot air and... Man, where are the people who actually are the house of the abiding glory of God, who advance in power? Well, let's, let's do that. <laughs> let's be that. So be strong. A couple of comments about how to be strong. Of course, it's in the Lord and in the strength of His might. That's the great qualifier. How do we do that? I, I want to make a few suggestions on how to be strong. And we're at a very beautiful, brisk pace here, so I'm very comfortable going through my list all the way. Right? How do we be strong? <laughs> Let's catch a vision of Jesus as a powerful, victorious warrior. It's one of the beauties of Jesus, really of the Lord throughout Scripture. Then when He becomes flesh, it is one of His manifest beauties. One of his unveiled character traits, one of his roles, is to play the role of a warrior. Right? That's the vision that we have throughout Scripture. But it's also throughout Ephesians. We see the battle king warrior fighting and winning all throughout the epistle, particularly chapter 1, when he is raised from the dead. By the way, what does it say there? How does it go? After the petition, there's three petitions. And then it says, these are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might. Which is the same phrase here. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. 
Well, Paul said it back in chapter 1, same phrase. That all of this is in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in the Messiah when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all the rule, all rule, power, and authority. I'm, I'm missing it. Far above all rule. What's, what is it? Authority, power, and dominion. And gave him the name above every name. Always forgetting something when I'm in front of people like that. But the, the point is, that's, that's implying a direct confrontation and defeat of those, those spiritual majesties that are ruling and governing the earth from their heavenly regions. He conquered them to get enthroned. Which, by the way, that's the heart of the gospel. The enthronement of the king. And he defeated his enemies to get there. There's a, there's a portrait of the, of the warrior king against his enemies, victorious and enthroned. And it's specifically, how did he do it? Through the strength of God's might. Which we have to also. In chapter 2, we see the king who destroyed the barrier between Jews and Gentiles. It was an act of war. There was enmity between people and God in the first half of that chapter. In the second half, between one people group, God's chosen people, and all these Gentiles that seem outside. So there was this huge fence. The Messiah came and ripped it down as a warrior king. And then in chapter 4, of course, it's very explicit. This portrait of the militaristic king who comes down and plunders his enemy. And gives the plunder to his people. The apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Again, the warrior king. Ephesians, as a mandate, is a call to war. It's a a spiritual military mandate. And then, of course, chapter 6 is our call to war as his people. But we're the body. We embody him. So it's not directly talking about the Lord, but it certainly is indirectly talking about this warrior king. We think back, even throughout the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, Yahweh is revealed as a warrior. Sometimes we forget this image, especially with our accurate emphases on on reaching our world and compassion and love within. We forget that the Lord really does have anger in his heart toward the wicked spiritual entities that are raging against the human race, against the nations, against Israel, and against us. God's like not happy with them. And he's not violent the way people are violent. He hates that kind of violence. He hates bloodshed. He hates it. But that's just the thing. He hates it. And he will go to battle against the causes of the bloodshed on earth. And he's fighting it constantly. He is at war. He's not just Santa Claus sitting in the sky hoping to bless. He's raging against these spiritual entities. They are now perfectly evil, unredeemable, and only exist to wreak havoc. And the Lord has set his face against them. And he's saying, I want you to join me in this battle. Because that's what my people do. So to be strong, we need this vision. These fallen beings that were originally on the counsel of the Lord, that have fallen and have now sought to disrupt God's eternal purpose, and of course the image of God in the human race, and, and, and the redemption of people, um, we're, we're in a war with them, but the Lord has been going against them from the beginning, and he still is, and calls us to join him. Right? So this picture comes out. What, what, what did the Israelites sing when they came out of Egypt through the Red Sea? Yahweh is a man of war. Yahweh is his name. So it, it, it says, Yahweh, my, what does it say? The Lord, my God. Okay, so Yahweh, my God, my strength, my song, has now become my victory. So, four centuries in Egypt, we leaned on the Lord as our hope, as our strength, as our song. We were enslaved for all these years. We were a distinct people group buried beneath another people group and we didn't have our own identity but we had our faith, we had our religion and we stuck to it and he was our song in the night and we hoped for him but good night, who expected this breakthrough? taking this staff turning it into a big old snake and eating up Pharaoh's magicians, snakes 
And all these plagues. I mean, it's absolute warfare against all these spirits. And God, for four centuries, you think he's just like, "Mm mm-hmm, sing your songs to me. Mm Mm-hmm. It's like, no, I'm getting ready for something. And when I break through, I'm going to fight. Just stick with me. Try to hang with me. Right? And so these ten plagues are just God systematically saying, I'm going to touch everything precious, everything powerful to you, and show that they're nothing to me. I will not be defied by these gods who are, who are claiming fame over my name just because you've enslaved my people. Just give me time. Watch what I'm about to do. And then he does it. And they're like, Yahweh, our God, our strength, our song, has now become our victory. He, Yahweh is a man of war. He came down and he fought. And he fought, fought ruthlessly against these spiritual enemies. I mean, the whole night of the firstborn? I gave you warning after warning after warning after warning, 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 warning. And before that, all kinds of prophetic warnings. Just let my people go into the wilderness to worship. Just three days. It's like, we're not letting you go. The gods of the Nile. The god of Pharaoh. The sun god. We own the world. The Lord's like, one, two, three. I'm just going to touch everything precious to you and powerful to you. Up till nine, and at the end, if you still will not let them go, I will touch you deeply, and I will show you that I'm the sovereign over this world. I'm against your evil powers, and those are my people. I gave you a chance to let them go. Yahweh is a warrior. Yahweh is his name. Because he's like smarter than everybody put together, and more patient than everybody put together, he doesn't care what we think over the centuries and millennia where he's waiting to do certain things. But time is on his side. Right? You know, if you win the game in the last two minutes, you win the whole game. In Joshua, you remember this one now, this is Exodus stage two, so to speak, where they're actually taking the land. They're not just getting out of bondage, but they're taking the land. And Joshua, after the Passover, they, they reinstitute the Passover. And Joshua looks up and there's this warrior. This was... Something like your Abraham story, because he was coming to deal with Sodom and Gomorrah. There's this warrior standing out there. And Joshua runs up and bows down and says, are you for us or against us? And the the immediate answer there in the Hebrew text is no. (laughs) It's like you're asking the wrong question. Are you for us or against us? As if we're the reference point. He's like, no, you're not the reference point. I'm the reference point. This is not your battle. This is my battle. The question is not, am I with you or against you? The question is this. I'm fighting. Are you with me or are you against me? Because even though you're my people, you still have to make a choice. So he, Joshua says, "Are you because he recognizes this is a divine being. This is a mighty warrior. You know, and he comes to find out this is Yahweh in the visible form. He would come sometimes in the Hebrew scriptures. He would come in visible form. At one, at a couple of points, actually, he's called the Word when he appears in the Old Testament. And so then in John 1, ah, that Word became flesh, became fully human. That, that, that visible form of Yahweh has come forever into our humanity, but I digress. At this point, he appears like a warrior. And Joshua's like, oh, I really hope you're on our side. He says, no, I am the captain of the hosts of Yahweh. Now I've come. That's what he says. Then he says, take off your sandals. Because the ground on which you're standing is holy. In other words, take a hint. I'm not an angelic being. I'm the one. I'm the mystery. I'm the I am. And I'm here as a warrior. And the hosts are with me. I sure hope you join me. Right? And they take that land, again, systematically going through, coming right in the middle, south, north. just, And it was all spiritual. Like in Isaiah 34, when the Lord talks about his judgment coming down, he says, my sword will be satiated into the heavens. My sword will be satisfied with a heavenly judgment, and then I'll bring it down on the earth. It's like, I'm going to fight these spiritual entities. I'm going to bring them down, and then I'm going to come and fight my enemies on the ground. It's a powerful image. Jesus does not discard that image of Yahweh. He magnifies it and fulfills it. And you have, uh, I say, so even in the Old Testament, the Messianic figure, same thing. Okay, this is getting a little teachy, but I'll just give you a couple of other uh, reference points. Isaiah 11 is some background for Ephesians, specifically Ephesians 6, because the Messiah comes and he's belted with righteousness, something like the, the war gear in Ephesians 6. There's some change. The metaphor is fluid. You know, different things are the belt or the helmets in 
in Isaiah, and Paul uses it differently in 1 Thessalonians. So, it's, you know, the point is, it's spiritual armory. In any case, the Messiah has it, and he just rules the world. He says, all my enemies, at one point, after everybody has a chance to receive mercy, I'm just going to impose my will one day. The Messianic figure in Isaiah 11 has that. Of course, there's Psalm 45, with the beautiful bridegroom, has his sword on his thigh, and he fights for meekness and justice. Which is the way that Brian was praying for Kayla and Sophia. He was recognizing their meekness. So it's interesting that you go to war for the cause of meekness. Seems contradictory. But the Lord loves everything in order and at rest. And if forces of chaos come in, he's like, I don't like your arrogance and I don't like your disruption to my environment of meekness. So I'm going to tear you up, bring you down. Move you out of the way and establish a kingdom of total shalom where everybody's just humble. <laughs> the most, okay, here's a good way of putting this. Arrogance is not a powerful weapon. Meekness is a powerful weapon. Humility is a powerful weapon. If we can stay genuinely meek because of humility... I've met people who had a very mild way about them, but they were very passive-aggressive. They're like, when you get them going, they're all calm about it, but they're like, abuse and everything. I was like, okay. But he's so meek. No, he's not. The Lord really is meek. And it's his meekness. In other words, he has no obligation to react to what you're doing. He has his own agenda from the Father, not our agenda. And he always stays in the agenda of God. He never reacts to our agenda. And it keeps him meek. And it releases all the authority of the kingdom. We'll get a little bit more into that practically as we go. So Jesus is that man of war. The Messiah is a warrior king. Therefore, Paul tells us to be strong in his strength. Don't fight the natural way. Fight his way in his strength. He's given us, he's already won the victory and given us the victory. We just enter into it. It's a gift. Amen. That part of the work is done. We don't have to do it. Amen. So he says, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. And that's another way that we obtain strength. Sometimes we just have to heed that exhortation. Come on now. Be strong. Sometimes that's all we need to hear in some situations. We're completely weak, we're completely overcome, and the simple word comes from the text, from the spirit, from a brother, from a sister. And you're just reminded, be strong. Oh yeah. But there have been times that I simply had to remember that. I just had to remember that exhortation, and it completely changed my posture. Come on, dude. Be strong. Oh, that's right. I'll just be strong. There you go. That's why that exhortation is even there. Paul's wise. He's economical with his words. He's not saying this so that you won't pay attention to it or because he shouldn't have to say it. He's saying it because he should have to say it. It's necessary and it's good. Be strong. Now, there's times that's not enough. We have to be connected to one another and pick one another up. I believe the prophesying community is implied in these texts. Earlier when it says speaking the truth in love. Speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. We, we just can't fully have the Lord's strength without exhortations coming to us and prophecies coming to us and to one another through the believing community. That's why in Hebrews it says, do it every day. Hebrews 3.13. Exhort one another day after day, as long as it's called today. So that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So that's there too. But how are we strong? We just embrace that exhortation to be strong. Don't forget to be strong. And we prophesy to one another. And finally, we are strong because we are determined to live out the vision of Ephesians, even in the face of enemy adversity. In other words, we're strong because we put on this actual battle gear and we fight. Now, Paul reminds us that our 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 battle is not against humanity. We're battling these evil powers. But Paul does not enumerate them. And I happen to think that he does enumerate something of a hierarchy. Rulers, authorities, world dominators, spiritual forces of wickedness. They have rank. They have file. They have different areas, I believe, in 
people, or not people, beings above them, etc., etc. But he doesn't go through all that so that we'll be focused on them. He doesn't go through all that so we'd be afraid of them. He's going through all that to say, don't mistake the battle. Yes, you have the victory. Yes, it's already granted to you if you'll be strong in it. But if you fight wrong, they're going to be able to take advantage of you. But if you fight right, you're fine. You're you're decked out in battle gear. I've got you. I'm leading the way, right? But when we fight the wrong way, I mean, I could remember um, Evan cut his finger once. Remember that, (laughs) Evan? Evan cut his finger once when he was a real little guy. The devil was messing with me before that. I had something like a, some kind of prophetic indication in my mind's eye. A little boy hurting his finger very badly. And, you know, the Lord was trying to prepare me. I suppose that's what it was. And the next day it happened. I come home after it's already, they're already in the throes of this thing. Evan's bleeding. He's screaming his head off. And Gene is trying to comfort him and hold him, and he, that wouldn't work. So I come in, and um, I'm commanding healing, but I'm not commanding it in the spirit. I'm, I'm commanding it in the flesh, meaning I'm just all knotted up in the circumstances as they are, rather than just in the Lord. And if there wasn't faith to it. I was just screaming, and he's screaming, and we're, we're about. And then in come the paramedics, because the, the top part of his finger had actually. Not all the way, but mostly come off. Had to be stitched back on. So Gina had called the paramedics because I was out. And I came home to the middle of this. And the, one of the paramedics scoops Evan up and just gently holds him. Shh, pats him. Calms him down. And they wrap it up. And I'm like, showing me up, dude. Here I am, spirit man. Spirit man is yelling in the flesh. comes in, he's just calm. I'm not saying he's fighting a spiritual battle, but he's closer than I am. <laughs> just get, get centered, all of life. And I, you know, there was a movie that said, I come from a long line of overreactors. I can, in some things I have, the Lord's given me patience for certain people, things, you know, in, in ministry. And then in these little short-term things, especially among people you're really familiar with, I just, ah, just get all tense. And, and i got to learn to not just manage that, but Replace that with the new creation. And so again, paramedic man was not necessarily, you know, Shandai and giving him a new little finger on the end. He, but he brought peace into the situation more than I did. And he had natural peace. And I potentially had spiritual peace, but I actually added to the chaos. And I was then a born again believer. It is possible for us to mismanage our own resources and add to the chaos. Rather than change the atmosphere. Man, just whenever you communicate, don't forget who you serve and that he has certain ways. Anyway. Okay, moving right along. Moving right along. Yes, so we take our stand. All right, I'll move right into the battle gear now. We're going to take our stand. Uh, we, we obtain spiritual strength and resolve not from our natural persona, not from carnality, right? We've already talked about this. Let me repeat it a little bit more. Christians, as I just illustrated, genuine Christians who are not conscientious about keeping covenant with the Lord and walking in covenant, at least often, let alone at all times. Okay? When we get in a mode like that, or Christians who are always in a mode like that, where they're not conscientious about the Holy Spirit and the ways of Jesus, people like that will resort to the world's tactics to fight the Lord's battles. They'll do it to fight their own battles. They'll do it to try to have influence. They'll do it to try to overcome, quote, evil. Like, like I did in the, the bathroom with Evan and the paramedic. <laughs> Try to fight evil with more evil because I'm coming at it like angrily in my flesh. Even though it was a healing I wanted, there was still a frustration there. Right? There was a story I told Evan, so I catch the tail end of it. People can do that in all their battles. Like if someone says something wrong against them, how do they respond? 
What does Jesus say to do? If they curse you, bless. And blessing comes from the heart. Right? Jesus was silent before his shearers when he was slandered and there were lies against him. I mean, talk about lies. The opposite of who he is. is oh, I didn't do that. I mean, people know I didn't do that. I mean, you, you think like that sense of justice, you get right in the flesh. But you're not going to have influence that way. And, and in order for us to maintain that spiritual posture and be strong in the spirit in a moment like that, because our flesh has a sense of justice too. And when we know we're right, it's even harder to keep a hold of that thing. When we know they're lying, and we know they're wrong, and we know there's a massive inter- misunderstanding, and we know we're innocent, what do we do? We, we react. And the Lord's like, no influence when you do that. Or, worse yet, you do have influence. But it's in the flesh. So there's no way you could actually touch the heart in a life-giving way. You've rather gotten your way through some fashion of manipulation. Because it's in the flesh. Some, some kind of abuse or some kind of oppression, or even if it's just a moment. It's like, we, if we're not conscientious, long-term or short-term, we're going to resort to carnal weapons to have influence. So I throw out the entire epistle to the Hebrews, uh, the Hebrews, to Ephesians, to the Ephesians, especially chapter 4, verse 17, and throughout to the rest. Paul teaches against certain things. Don't do this, don't do that, don't be like this, rather do this, rather do that. He's setting them up for spiritual weaponry. And contrasting that with carnal weaponry. Throughout Ephesians, Paul teaches ethics. And he teaches against things that are carnal, like disputes that don't get mended righteously. Like lying, anger, ignorance of God's ways, greed, stealing, foul speech, immorality, or sensuality. Coarse humor, idolatry, darkness or secrecy, drunkenness, dysfunctional families, or families who leave their roles, where the children have the parental influence and vice versa. He teaches against all those things, because it says if you yield to any of those things, you lose your power. So I says, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only that which gives... Grace and edification for those who are listening. So if, what does it say on these movie, um, what, what is it, the uh, rating? It says PG-13 or something for strong language. I remember when I was young, um, someone said to me, you know, we were, we, none of us were saved, but someone said to me about a certain curse word. He said, man, it's a powerful word. And we call curse words strong words. It's strong language. And I'm thinking, actually, no, that's not strength. That's weakness. Because we don't trust our words have power. We have to borrow from something foul and dark. As Christians now do it, like, abundantly. I've talked about this before along the same lines. We think it gives us power to use words like that. Like it gives us influence. And God's saying, not my kind of influence. You're weak. You don't trust the character of the Messiah, who's meek and pure, to actually have influence. You've got you to gotta vent in the moment or use a word, borrow a word that the world calls a curse. And, and battle on its terms. That's not strength. That's weakness. It's the way we operate. Right? Well, they said this. Now, I'll say this about them because they said something about me. And the Lord's like, yeah, that makes you feel powerful in the moment. But you're not powerful when you do that. You're weak. When you lie to be someone you're really not, but you're not, you know, you, you might convince the person in the moment and feel powerful in the moment, but you haven't influenced anyone for the kingdom. Nothing's getting anywhere. It's all for you. So Paul teaches against these things because he's teaching us how to be powerful. And he says, get ready. You're going to need all of that. Not just shouting in tongues on a hilltop against a principality. But remaining strong in your kingdom ethics here. So that all the doors are closed to the enemy. We don't have to allow the enemy to traffic in the church of the city. We don't have to do that. We don't have to do, be people who use foul language or who slander or who don't cultivate family, who do, who do let the sun go down on their anger and leave the church righteously because of the event. We don't have to let the devil dance at all of our meetings and parties. We can be strong if we will embrace the Ephesians mandate. And the, the epistle itself 
and our current prophetic atmosphere is saying, get ready, you all, we all, we're going to need it. We're going to need it. We're going to need our arms locked. And this, our, the communities and praying for a larger picture to be ready for spiritual battle. Not because something's looming to attack us, but because we're on the attack and we want to go forward. And those things are going to resist us. But they don't have to be successful, let alone scary. I think I said that. It doesn't matter. They don't have to be successful or scary if we're just building up the Ephesians mandate throughout the epistle and then saying, we say yes, Lord, and we're going to do it like warriors. Not just like nice people. We should be kind to one another and all of that. But I'm kind as an act of war, too. Because I know the devil wants to get me out of that kindness mode. Right? Love, it says, preserve the unity of the spirit. Okay, I want to do that as an act of war, not just because it's the right thing to do. But because we're in a battle and we want to see our city filled with Christ. So the first piece of armor, I'll go through these quickly. Everybody okay? I'm, people are maybe, you know, we, it's 535, just a few more minutes. Maybe getting a little bit antsy. No, 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 no I'm not. I, I want to make sure everybody is, is good. Can you sit there a little bit longer? Okay. So I, I asked that. What's that? Yes, thank you for the encouragement. No, but I will. You know how preachers are like, you want me to stop? You want me to stop speaking now? No, keep preaching. It's always the, what do you call the enthusiastic ones? The rest of the Sunday crowd is like, oh boy. We know your tricks. The belt of truth is mentioned first. The belt would keep, and there were different kinds of belts for armor, but some of them were underneath the battle gear, some of them right on top, both. They held the swords, if you had more than one, or, uh, and also helped put the different gear together, and also kept the gear together in a way that the soldier could move well, which apparently is what truth does for us. Uh, the truth of Paul, he mentions truth many times throughout Ephesians. Truth refers to the gospel itself. For salvation and God's eternal purpose. The truth, we embrace truth when we let the gospel define us as disciples who create family. I mean, that's the truth. The truth about who Jesus is, what he did on the cross, and then what the, the, the kind of community that creates. Because that's what Ephesians is all about. So the truth is the gospel in 113. Truth also refers to community-wide communication. Which I referred to earlier. When we communicate with one another different facets of the gospel as it applies to everyday life, as it applies to God's eternal purpose, and as it applies to the new creation. Paul says, speak truth to one another in love. He says, speaking the truth in love, instead of being passive and blown about by every wind of doctrine, you're going to cause growth. So truth is the truth of the gospel that impacts life, that creates a gospel community. That's the truth we have to have strapped on. Not just knowing right doctrine, but being a community that's true. Not mixed. Right? Yeah, we're going after God, but also we just do our little routine and we just, you know, just human tradition. It's like, no. Truth is not just the right ideas from God. It's living truly. So we communicate this truth. Also, Paul uses uses it as the opposite of the lie. He tells us explicitly, out of a list I already mentioned, but here I'll mention it again because we're dealing with truth. He says, pretty, pretty, pretty bluntly, don't lie. Tell the truth. Because you're members of one another. I was, one time I was watching this, um, this, this lady give a talk. On uh, lying. <laughs> She's an expert on lying. It's extraordinary. She's an expert on lying. Nothing she said was true, but it was awesome. <laughs> she talks about how it's impossible for any person to lie completely. Because part of you knows you're lying and you're giving away signals. If you learn how to read them, you can tell when people are lying. And you can't do it like just a couple of different signals, it's when they appear. Um, in a series that you could tell the person is lying. She showed videos of like well-known people who were caught lying. She says, you watch when he does this, 
the way he says that, that little smile, this little smile like this one completely, horrifically guilty criminal was giving the lie that she was not the one uh, who did this crime. And at one point she lifts her mouth a little bit, smiles a little bit. And she says, that's a tell. It's called duper's delight. That's what it's called. It's actually a technical term where you're lying, but part of you is like delighting in the fact that you're getting away with it. Your body cannot fully hide the lies. And she's, it's absolutely remarkable, but you can't go read this stuff. Just don't read it, because you'll be looking at it. Like, <laughs> Believe me, I had to distance myself from it. When I was in youth ministry many, 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 many moons ago, there was this one kid. God bless him, he had a lot of problems, and he brought a lot of problems with him. But we actually had a, a very good relationship. But he would lie to me like nobody's business. And he had a very easy tell. Very easy. When he was telling the truth, he could not even come close to looking me in the eye. When he was telling the truth. Because we think, now look me in the eye, I want to see you're telling the truth. It's like, not this kid, he was the exact opposite. I always knew he was lying. With just complete ease. It was effortless. Because he'd look right at me. Every time. No exception. And I mean locked in. He was doing it. He was performing. I'm like, and sometimes I wouldn't even call him out because I'm just dealing with this. It went so deep. There were so many things. I'm just trying to look. You know, sometimes I call him out. But when he's telling the truth and we're talking straight up, he's looking at the ground completely ashamed. Could never look at me. So I tried to manage it where I'm not calling him out on all that, but it's a very easy tell. It's really interesting how people lie, but they're not, they can't really fully lie because they're trying to project an image and they have to be conscious of it. Right? So this lady says, Okay, we lie, and you know, I'm sure she's overgeneralizing on purpose. There's other reasons why we lie, but it probably roughly belongs to this reason, right? We lie because the person we want to be is out here. And the person we really are is the person we really are is right here. And we try to fill the gap by lying to project an image. Like, yeah, I gave away about a million dollars last year. So I want to be seen as generous. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, wrote about a thousand books you don't know about them because I wrote under another author's name <laughs> so smart so I want to project I wish I were that prolific I wish I were that smart so I project it right but with the new creation the person we quote wish we were we actually are by identity forget even what we wish God made us he says in, he created us in righteousness and holiness of the truth So the person we quote want to be, God made us without us having to want to be that. We are that. So there might be a gap in the way we're living, but we fill the gap through discipleship. Not by lying, because we can afford to be honest and be ourselves, even when we fail. Because we really are this person, we're just trying to grow into that image. So we can do all that together and never have to be false. We can be real, we can be true. We never have to calculate how people are receiving what we're saying because we're just being ourselves. Because we trust the way God made us and we're being discipled into that. We're all in the same boat, so who's going to criticize one another, right? Speak the truth in love. This truth of what the gospel says we are and then our telling the truth in harmony with that, that's the belt that keeps everything else together. Truth. Let me tell you something. In our digital age... There's a lot of lying out there, man. A lot of lying. I mean prophetic people doing their research and giving false words of knowledge based on things they've studied online. We want to project an image and we will lie to do it. And we will never be powerful if we're false. We must Gird our loins and strap all the pieces together with the truth. The truth of the gospel, accepting that truth as a new creation in ourselves, and then speaking that truth in love to one another in authenticity, no matter what that means. Praise God. Man, if we walk in the light, as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. Which means lying breaks fellowship even when we're not conscious of it. Which is exactly why Paul says in Ephesians 4, speak the truth to one another because we're members of one another. I mean, in one sense, 
Okay, forgive this bad theology, philosophy thing, but it's like that's a part of you, that person you're lying to. You're in this together. You're connected. If you lie and bring in that darkness, you're breaking up the body, the whole thing. So the truth is important. It's the first first thing he mentions because it keeps everything else together. My other comments are briefer on each piece of armor, so we move on. The breastplate of righteousness. I'm quoting one scholar that talks about what the breastplate was to a soldier. It was a metal shield worn like a shirt over the breast to protect the chest and other vital or, or the vital internal organs on the inside. So, you know, we can't always stretch the metaphor, but somehow when we corporately walk in righteousness, when we wear righteousness, we're protecting the vulnerable part of who we are, the internal organs, the heart. Perhaps, in a sense, even the more vulnerable body members. You know, it's amazing when people, as a community, are not walking in an upright way. It's the weaker people. You know, the, the, the younger ones, the more, afflicted, more naturally afflicted ones. They're the ones that get hurt. They're the ones that get shunned when we're not walking in an upright manner. Right? The righteousness of the prophets, they were always the champions of the widows and the orphans. They're always looking out for the afflicted. But when we're unrighteous, even if it's, we're trying to fake righteousness... It's the weaker ones, the vulnerable parts of our body, so to speak, that are vulnerable. In Ephesians, righteousness refers to the upright identity of the new creation. I already quoted that verse. Created, we are created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. So it's an upright identity. It's not just something we live. It's something we're granted. It's our nature to be righteous. But then righteousness is worked out in an ethical life of obedience. When we live out the new creation... In covenant faithfulness. Righteousness is obedience. Because we're faithful to our covenant. And our covenant is not just an agreement with God. It's a new creation that we can live out of by grace. But we still have to be intentional and conscientious. So when we are, we're protected. You know, it's amazing. People who just walk with authenticity, who tell the truth, and who live in obedience to God, there's a billion things they don't have to worry about. We don't have to worry about people's opinion. We don't have to worry about if we're going to get caught in that lie. We don't have to worry about if the devil's going to get in and take advantage of that. We don't have to worry about if some spiritual cancer is going to start to grow in that area that we've left open. It's just people who walk corporately in righteousness and truth are so protected. A man's, a man's integrity will guard him, it says in Proverbs. It's like even Joseph, when he was about to do the wrong thing, he was going to put Miriam away because she, she, was, she was pregnant, but she had never known a man. She was a virgin, but that didn't look that way to the natural eye. So he was going to put her away secretly. He was going to try to cover her because of his own integrity. He was going to do what he had to do, but he was still going to cover her. Even though he didn't know what was happening, he still acted in righteousness, and an angel appeared to him. And told him the right thing. No, 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 don't misunderstand. This is from the Holy Spirit. Ah, well, you know what he didn't do? He didn't go slander her and abuse her and expose her. He did what was righteous. And even before he knew all the details, he was protected. And protected her. And an angel appeared. And gave him the full story. So we don't always know exactly what to do. But we know the way we're supposed to walk will remain protected. Okay, godly lifestyle is a part of the righteousness. But our feet are strapped with the readiness of the gospel of peace. This is why I symbolically wore these shoes that practically have, I've had to charge them. They're so bright. They were charging at all. I put them on. That's why this glare is coming from my glasses. It's shining up from my shoes. Ah, our feet are strapped with the readiness of the gospel of peace. Uh, the, the, the soldiers of Paul's day, probably Roman soldiers, are being referred to. They wore these big leather boots with spikes like cleats, like I said before. They provided them mobility and protection in difficult terrain, as well as stability in hand-to-hand combat because they're not giving up. Do you like that? It's an action figure. My Adidas sneakers on. <laughs> Spiritual warriors can only move forward through the gospel. And there's debate over readiness of the gospel means are you ready to preach it or you're ready because you embrace the gospel of peace. Either one works because later we have the sword of the spirit. We do preach the word, whichever one you apply it to. But anyway, the readiness of the gospel of peace, because it's the gospel of peace, which means what you guys in the context of Ephesians, it means the gospel doesn't just save souls. First half of chapter two, it creates a community, which is a family. 
That is what peace is. Right? This isn't a fetish that we have because we do things as family. That is the gospel's climactic expression. It's the creation of a family with people who would not naturally be able to blend together in love. But in the gospel they do. It creates peace. And Paul's saying if you live out this gospel, you embrace this message, you preach this message, but you embody this message, you are protected and capable of moving forward. You won't have the pressure of just growing your ministry. You'll be more concerned with proliferating the peace of the gospel, restoring families made up of disciples. So the the gospel of peace refers to, from Ephesians 2, 11 and 12, the creating of one new man of Jews and Gentiles. Paul says, be diligent to preserve the unity of that person in the bond of peace. It's a social word, not just a personal word referring to tranquility of heart. That's included But hardly all of it. The readiness of the gospel of peace could indeed refer to our own readiness to preach it. And so we'll take that too. Because later we have a sword and that's the way we we move forward also. Next is the shield of faith. See, we are almost done. The shield of faith. The soldier would hold a large shield. It's probably the one being referred to. It was made of sturdily constructed wood laminate with outside edges curving around the soldier. I don't know how you're supposed to fight. You've got to come out from that thing, but I guess it's like do this and then do that. Corey can help us figure that out, but I don't know. Let's get him underneath. Or these guys are vulnerable and the important guys have the shield. I don't know. That's why Goliath had a guy hold his shield. So Goliath could throw his stuff and this guy <laughs> holding the shield up. But the outside edges would curve toward the soldier and provide some protection even from the sides as well as the front. It was covered in leather uh, rimmed with metal. I think they would sometimes soak the, the leather too so that the flames could be doused from the flaming arrows. Anyway, uh, it's rimmed with metal, had a metal had a metal boss on the outside. That can't be right. A metal boss? Is that right? I'm, I don't know if I typed that or is that a typo? A boss? It's boss? A boss? On the outside for the protection of the hand that held it. It's got to be a technical term. It's got to be. Okay. Where, all right. It was critical to the survival of the soldier in combat, whether from missiles launched from a distance or blows from weaponry up in close combat, okay? How do we have this, this massive protection comes through our faith when we just believe. And again, for, there have been times in my life in certain battles, just like the be strong part, where the Lord has reminded me, your faith is a shield. If you'll just trust God, you're protected. And I'm like, yes, I forgot to trust God. So I'm reminded, take, you have to take up the shield, Right? It's not going to do it with the work for you, but you take it up and it's, it's massively protective. And so sometimes I would just remember to believe, and then I would, and it's like, yeah, I'm protected. Every flaming missile will be doused with this faith. So it refers to our belief. Faith is our belief in Jesus as Lord. But it also refers to our conviction in the heart, our covenant surrender, our pledge of allegiance. It's fidelity. It's not just believing for a miracle. It's fidelity to the Lord. I'm loyal to the Lord and I trust Him. That protects the community of faith. That can, can, uh, it, it protects us as a community, as communities of faith. Amen? We can believe God together. And nothing will harm us. All we have to do is believe. And again, sometimes we have to remind ourselves to do it, but then let's do that. Faith saves us. Faith gives us access. Paul uses faith many times in Ephesians. And I will move to our last two um, uh, pieces of armor. The helmet of salvation. Uh, The helmet was a bowl-shaped piece of metal. I think they also used it for haircuts. It was padded metal that protected the head and it would have extensions. Not hair extensions, helmet extensions. You've seen those too. You put on the Viking helmet and it's got all the long hair, you know. That's not the extensions I'm talking about. I'm talking about like face guards. They had things on the face. Uh, things went down by the neck and even the shoulders. Protected the cheeks, the neck, you know. Was protect- I'm still, you know, those were the old days, man. I mean, 
I, I can't imagine. I can't imagine fighting at all, but um, fighting <laughs> with all that armor on. Salvation protects this upper part where we think and where our beautiful faces are, right? Protects us. The the spirit of deliverance, God has saved us and we implement that salvation in the way we live. And we believe for victory. That's another way of putting it. It's like a helmet of victory. It protects our minds. Our mindset is meant to be one of victory, not melancholy. <laughs> not melancholy, you know. I mean, we have our moments. I'm not talking about that, but I'm talking about the spirit. Well, we're, you know, we're going to fail again. No, the helmet, of, it's like we have, a, we have an, an attitude of victory. And we're on the right side. God's going to get us through this thing. We're more than conquerors. That protects us as a community. It's a bowl-shaped helmet with extensions. The sense of victory in our practical lives. And finally, of course, the sword of the Spirit is the proclaimed Word of God. So powerful is the Word of God when we open our mouths and proclaim it. It is so powerful. As much as it might feel awkward in certain social situations, it releases the power of God. You guys get that wasp? Is that a wasp? Be very careful. Don't let it sting you. I think that's why you're wearing that hat, to capture that wasp. Guys know how to fight this battle now. I saw that thing, it was all the way over here. And then it made its way all the way over there, so you guys beware of this wasp or whatever it is. The sword referred to a standard military blade for hand-to-hand combat, probably this one did. It wasn't extremely long, it wasn't very short. It could do ugly damage to our enemies. It is the word spoken and is the gospel. It has cleansing power in Ephesians 5.26. It goes forth to save, to heal, to add new disciples to the body. It, It cuts the enemy down as it releases people into the kingdom. And with that, we have to close. We'll stand together and close in prayer.